Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss our flawless sense of direction. <laughs> we talk to Darren Duke about archaeology, ancient footprints, and working collaboratively. And finally, per Reader's Digest, according <laughs> to genetic evidence, more than 90% of modern humans descended from a small population of Homo sapiens that left Africa about 60,000 years ago. Researchers thought that superior tools, including fine stone blades that could be used on the ends of spears, was one of the main reasons for their success. But a site in southern India was evidence that people there had advanced tools more than 200,000 years ago. Whether that means that human ancestors left Africa in waves or that different hominids came up with similar innovations separately is unknown, but very interesting. Yeah. There you go. Archaeology. One day we'll figure it out, maybe. How cool right? is that? <laughs> when we get that time machine yeah <laughs> hit that music great news everyone epr is doing an ask me anything on wednesday april 12th at 8 p.m eastern on our youtube channel at epr podcast Laura and I will be available for you to ask us about career advice, our favorite toppings on pizza, or anything else that crosses your mind. Movies. Mark your calendars. See you there. Did you say cool beans? I said movies. Movies. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so late? It's so late so our East Coast friends can, or West Coast friends can join. Cool. So ask us anything. I'll fix that in post. I was trying to add some FAQ in there. That would be good. How do I join? You just go to www.youtube slash at EPR podcast. That's how you join the great questions. These are great questions. And I'll answer them <laughs> the exact same way. When we're doing it. <laughs> Will I have to talk or can I type my questions? You can talk or type either way. I think, uh, yeah, for awesome. sure. I'll be there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we might even have some friends from past podcasts. That's true, but let's not give away everything. <laughs> yeah, let's not promise what we can't deliver <laughs> so yeah no, i'm just making it up as we go yeah all right cool cool Beans. <laughs> we have a sponsor today uh no we do not are you ready i am as ready as i'm gonna be we'll see how this goes 30 all seconds right. go okay laura today's the topic of the day is uh, about well, the internet, right? You know, we all live it. We all love it. We all use it. Uh, and there's a new, fascinating, and wonderful way to enjoy that internet. And that's what the company called Ebola. That's right, Ebola. That is an <laughs> online platform that does stuff. And you might be wondering, what does it do? How do I use it? Great questions. I don't know those answers, but we do have at least eight foosball tables <laughs> in our WeWork station. So that's all I'm saying is it's great. It's wonderful. It's a new startup. It's got all the flashy designs. We've got, you know, Tesla's for everybody that shows up and uh, yeah, we are, and a business model. I don't know what it is. I have no idea, but I'm sure it, it seems great. Our, our website is, is it too far? Okay. I'm done. <laughs> I don't know. I'll turn it off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I got to keep going. I was like, oh my I need God. a better buzzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't hear it. I just saw your phone flap up. <laughs> Perfect. Ebola. All right. That was going well, though. I liked it. <laughs> cool. Well, let's get to our segment then. Every time I've ever gone on the field to go down to a ditch, someone picks the wrong path. And it's, it's never me. It's right, right, right. Whoever's in front. It's like, this will be safe. And you get like thorns, like, you know, in every part of your body. Um, <laughs> you know, you're like, 
this is the thickest brush. You couldn't find a simpler, easier way to get down here. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then you get down there. You're like, you see that path right there? That one that we could have yeah. taken? <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I feel like I have experienced that. I can't think of any specific examples. I was going to say, we actually had a, a guy, like a specific when I was doing my field work in grad school. We called it the Dan path because he always chose the worst way. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, it's like walk around the bush, not through it. You know? And he's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, I worked. well it's like well it's right there i'm like yes but there's like 18 (laughs) feet of just thicket we can't get through that we have to walk around so that we're not dead i don't want to die from blood loss in the middle of the you know forest you know yeah i i feel that but i think my most recent experiences are with my own boyfriend anytime we go anywhere even if it's just to the grocery store he takes the longest route (laughs) i'm like why are we going this way And I'm like, well, I'm oh, not I'm driving, so whatever. Yeah, um, I'm notorious for that. So it's, yeah. <laughs> I get lost actually really easily. Like, it's just like a, you know, we all have strengths and, we- strengths, strengths and weaknesses, Laura. This is strengths and weaknesses. Mine is in sense of direction. No idea. <laughs> like, I can go, like, if I'm walking, like, to a grocery store, I'm like, all right, got it. Got my stuff. Cool. <sighs> all right. Which way was it back? And I- I'd have to pull up my phone and look. I, I mean, it's it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> it's. Um, I'm usually pretty good, but this weekend we went to go see my dad's band play, which was fun. But I met my brother there and I pull up, I'm in the neighborhood and the map took me past my dad's house. I'd only been there once. And my brother goes by his, and he's like, his house is back there. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just follow you. And then we had to like park at his house and go to the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea where I am. And my brother's like, okay, turn here, turn there. We're like, how do you know where to go? And it's like, yeah, it's a yeah. grid. It's just a grid. I'm like, okay. It's not a grid. This one road goes curvy <laughs> and that throws the whole grid off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the whole problem with the East Coast, right? Is like nothing's a grid. Absolutely. Right. It's a grid. And so that's part of it. And you know, there's some joy. There is joy in getting lost, you know, so they say. But that's what lost people tell people who have great senses of direction. Right. right. Um, but no, I, yeah, I'm not so bad about my, my neighborhood. I, I know there's like a few pockets of places that I know pretty well, which is like really super surprising. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is here, here and here and here. And it's like, how do you know that? I'm like, I don't know. Honestly, God, don't let's not question it. Let's just accept that today I know where I'm going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, otherwise, no, I'm totally. I out. think this is a problem we're all going to have. The more we rely on like Google Maps and Apple yeah. Maps to tell us where we're going, it's like you don't have to remember the street signs or any significant markings or anything to be like, uh-huh. oh, I turn after the McDonald's and whatever. Right. <laughs> well, it's funny because like you know, my dad was a. Uh, police officers growing up so like we were supposed to know he would like, yeah. test us he, we're on the call, r- road he would call if we answered you know big problem but uh you know if we <laughs> pulled over to the side of the road we had to tell him like where we're where, we're, where we are what we're doing you know kind of thing and then you know which is you know loving of course um but uh <laughs> your dad just reminds me of did, did you watch the show psych uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Your, your dad yeah. very much reminds me of Sean's father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, very much like that. How many hats are in the room, Nick? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm just like, I have, I can't, I don't know, 700. And he's like, <laughs> go to your room. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He kind of, he was kind of like that. He always was like, you have to know what street you're on. If you're driving on the highway, you need to know mile markers. You have to pay attention to all this stuff because if you break down, you get in an accident and you can't tell people where you are, you could die. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's right. But at the same time, it's like, okay, dad. Yeah. Thanks. 
So I don't know. It never stuck. I wish it did. I wish I, I wish I had the, that imprinted for real. That'd be great. Yeah. So are you saying that you might be the guy in the field who takes the long route? I would definitely take the long route. Oh yeah. Like the very, okay. Oh my gosh. Speaking of field stories, the very first time I went into the uh, forest for when I was doing grad school, right? Work, right. Brand new forest. Never been there before. Had no idea where it was. I'm by myself and I just walk like, you know, an hour into the forest. That's not, that's a long way, <laughs> you know? And uh, I'm like, all right, it's time to go back. And I turn around, look at the thing. And I'm like, I legit walked in circles. I had the <laughs> GPS unit with me. <laughs> and and you're like, walked, oh, there's the parking lot. <laughs> I walked in the circle. I walked in a full circle before I went back out. And I'm like, yeah, you should uh, just keep that GPS unit up <laughs> and follow it. You know, it was pretty bad. That wouldn't, I was pretty embarrassed. I was like, man, I'm so glad no one saw that. <laughs> yeah, so definitely. I would definitely get lost. I don't know. Not you, though? Not you? I can definitely get lost, I think. I don't think I'm inclined to get lost, but I'm also very cautious about like not getting lost. So I'm very always trying to like have my markers and be like, okay, here's a trail of peanuts I can follow on my <laughs> way back or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's just... Like I say, strengths and weaknesses. That's all it is. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to our interview. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome back to EPR. Today, we have Dr. Darren Duke, a principal and COO at Far Western Anthropological Research Group, and he's also the director of their Desert Branch office in Henderson, Nevada. Welcome, Darren. Hi. How are you? Ah, doing, doing great. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I'm an archaeologist. I'm a consulting archaeologist in private industry. So we follow federal law, even state law in California, that protects cultural resources. So lands like the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service. I do a lot of work on military land. Those are the things. You know, we get power lines, pipelines, et cetera. The military obviously does a lot of testing and training. Mm -hmm. um, but we do cultural resources surveys to clear those areas for development. Yeah. And so when you do the surveys, when you're conducting those in the field, like what goes into that process? How do you, how do you start it? How do you end it? Well, we get a job in a similar way. Any consultant, we bid on it. Usually sometimes things come to us through ways we know or existing contracts or clients or whatever. But once we get the job in hand, then I'll speak for myself in you know, the desert West where I usually work, you know, let's say it's the power line, you know, we're going to get an area of potential effect, some kind of corridor probably that buffers out against the center line of that thing. And then we would do a ground survey of it. And out West, everything's pretty much on the surface, not always the case. And that's one of the interesting wrinkles that we get to think about, but more or less, you're looking at the ground surface and, and walking all that with people on crews, and you get done and you record sites as you find them and you make evaluations of their significance relative to the National Register of Historic Places. It's a process. Right. It's a regulation called Section 106. We do that and then we help steer those clients the direction to avoid those things or if they have to go through them and affect them, then we go to another phase where we might have to dig it or do enhanced recording or some other type of method. Right. And I guess the typical things you find on a, a standard project would be, what would those things be? Well, they are, uh, we say pre-contact area, often 
called prehistory, but we don't really use that term as much anymore, but uh, and historic era material. So the West obviously was part of American history and important growth in American history, and especially in the 19th century and early 20th century. So we do a lot of recording of that kind of thing. The law has us usually working around if it's 50 years old or older, we will record it. So a lot of historic era sites, mining and ranching and things like that. But then the bulk of it probably is the pre-contact area. So stone tools and pottery and things like that. Yeah. And do you find like, and I know archaeology is a pretty regional field. You've already alluded to like what you do out West and would probably be a little, a little different than what would be in the East. Do you find that there's even regional differences within the West, certain areas where you find more of a certain type of artifact? The sorts of things we find are similar. The tides of history through America have are different on one side of the country versus the other in some ways. But we find much the same kinds of things, but uh, we certainly find them differently. I'm from Oklahoma, and I, I started out east of the Rockies where... You know, you're going through Arkansas or Oklahoma or Texas and you're you don't see, you know, there's been deposition where people were in the deeper past. And so usually you're going and these survey lines, you you throw a shovel probe down every 30 meters or the other interval and see what's in it. And then if you find something in it, you're digging in cardinal directions to keep trying to dead reckon it. One thing I like about being out west is that you can see the whole thing laid out and gives you a different sensibility. So that's a difference I think is meaningful in how archaeologists actually engage the record. Ah, Ralph's really cool. <laughs> did you always want to be an archaeologist, even as like a kid, or is this what you kind of felt like? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I look at those National Geographic books in the 80s. Yeah. You know, I still have one that has, you know, King Tut's mask on the front of it from like, I don't know, the early 80s. It was like, yeah. I couldn't get enough of that. Yeah. And um, when I got older, I went to school, went to the University of Oklahoma to do anthropology. And yeah, that was a question I had when I was, I started was like, did I just like this cool stuff I saw, you know, and covers of National Geographic or do I really like it? Because, you know, you get into the more like, what do you do here? You, you know, you don't look at gold masks, you look at, you know, <laughs> stone flakes and all that. But I went to a field, I did a field school. We went to Arizona. I was hooked, you know, I was hooked. I loved it. I mean, the mis I would, mystery is one way to put it, but just the puzzle really yeah. is a better way. I think that I think of it, it's engaging. You think of people doing what are basically very human and somewhat unsurprising things, but the diversity with which they were done that you can kind of forensically document that no one would ever know is there if you have the wherewithal to work on it. And so that's what is compelling still about it for me. Yeah. And as your career has kind of gone on, I mean, like, you know, we always have the, we've talked a lot about it on the show. There's a transition from you know, you're doing the field work and then you become more of a managerial person. You do less field work. Do you still get to do a little of everything or is it, is it, have you had to adjust to a, a less field experience? Yeah. You know, I do less field, but I keep my own pet things going. And it is true. Like you kind of age out of on the ground all the time, kind of 
it's kind of hard to let that go, to be honest, on some level. But there's also, as you know, one of my colleagues said, you know, Darren, you got to embrace the keyboard at some point. That's where the <laughs> value of what you're doing is coming into play. Like, even right. if it is archaeology, writing that archaeology up is part of the mental engagement. You know, that's fun too on a certain level. I mean, deadlines and whatnot being the worst part about it, but you know, <laughs> um, it's the whole ball of wax. You know, you go out in the field and you find it. You go to the keyboard and you you document it. That's where you really learn. Uh, you take those ideas that came to you and you scrutinize them, turn them over. And if you can print them, you find you didn't even have it right. You know, most of what you said in the first thought in the first place until you yeah. really put it on paper. So the whole thing matters. And yeah, the transition has happened. But there are, you know, I have this ongoing work in Utah that's kind of my little pet area that I've developed for 20 plus years. And that's the thing that I still, that scratches me where I itch on the, I go out, I run it, I do it. I, you know, nobody else does kind of thing. Yeah, I got you. And I definitely, we'll definitely dive into that in a minute. It's a really cool project and I want to hear a ton about it. Um, But like the, uh, like the idea, the, the things that you like, the things you're interested in, hunter-gatherer ecology and the lithic economy, those are like your key areas of interest. What's your 30-second elevator speech for what those are? Like, what are those? Okay. Um, how do you go from some stone flakes and tools laying on the ground that are over, you know, 10, 12,000 years old and say something about how people moved about the entire landscape, what kind of groups they were in? what they emphasized in terms of what they ate, where they moved, and then even better, how their social society was. You know, how was it maybe at least generally organized so you can understand what their life was like on some scale you can relate to. That's what I think those two things come in and do for us to learn about. Yeah, and and over time, and this might even slide into your, your project in Utah, but how you've gone about... Uh, solving the puzzle, so to speak. There's been a lot of advancements in technology that have been used in archaeology. And I would say there's even there's been a ton even in the last 10 years or so. So how has the use of technology helped you identify and solve these puzzles that you find? Well the things we've learned primarily have come by old methods. They aren't there's no new technology that really takes over for walking around and looking and being <laughs> on the ground. Right. But right. new technologies are a major enhancement to that on the back end, especially, and they can be used to help the search as well. So for example, ground penetrating radar is something we're doing, going to be getting, doing more of. And it's key to like really resolving what we could not just with a shovel or a trowel or observation, because we can see underground without peeling anything back. Yeah. That's digging all those holes you need. <laughs> Um, and yeah. yeah, well, we could talk a little bit more about it. We get into some of the details of the Utah stuff, but new technologies will be they're key to especially not so much as finding things as they are the preservation and protection of resources once you know what they are. You know, how do you put them in museums? You know, maybe you can't put the thing in the museum or you wouldn't take it out, or Native American tribes in the region want them dealt with differently rather than you know plucked out and moved around. Right. Um, new technologies allow us to gather information and, and extract that without having to affect the artifacts or the sites or whatever. 
this year. Well, yeah. So let's talk about your uh, your project in Utah. It's it's really genuinely incredible. Utah Test and Training Range uh, is where it is. So what can you tell us about it? Well, I started working for the military in, I think it was early 2001. And already there it was known there was something going on out there. And this, this is a training range for well, the same reason a lot of the training ranges out west exist. Uh, it's a big empty space that the military, you know, wasn't taking anybody's farmland away or anything like that. This is the Great Salt Lake Desert floor. This is what people would be familiar with looking at Bonneville Speedway, Salt Flats, not absolutely zero of anything. So why not test bombs on it? You know, that's what the military said 60 plus years ago. Right. Um, it turns out that there was a, a vast wetland out there at the end of the Pleistocene as a major Ice Age lake called Lake Bonneville receded as mm. things turned warm. We moved into the Holocene. And that lake, which covered half of western Utah, is now the kind of Great Salt Lake, which is but a puddle to the original lake, as huh, great yeah. as it is. Yeah. Um, as that receded, a lot there was overflow of water coming in from all sides, and you would have had because it's such a big basin, one of the biggest wetland areas in the entire desert west. It would have been a, a oasis, a huge oasis. A wetland full of everything, you know, the entire flyway of waterfowl would have been oriented on it. I mean, the animals, everything. So these people around, you know, 12 to 13,000 years ago, can't say they're the first people around. We don't know. It looks like there were people around earlier in the desert west, but it's the first material way that we can see that people had, you know, this was probably a big draw. It sort of expanded about 13,000 years ago and probably brought a lot of people's attention there. And so they did that. And then that place dried up about 9,000 years ago. And and people in the past really have avoided the central part of that desert flat since that time, by and large. I mean, of course they knew it was there, but they lived and operated in areas around the basin because that was gone. So you have an archaeological record that is A, not common everywhere because it's so old, but B, not mixed with other stuff. And from an archaeologist's perspective, you want to see things that aren't mixed because mm-hmm. you know that we know that a projectile point of some type is goes to some time a lot of times, but all the other things around that aren't diagnostic like that, you don't always know. But with this, we can look at the entire sweep of their technology and and say things because we know that they are from this general time frame that's great i mean and it leads me to my next question which is kind of like so basically an area like this also allows you to identify when a group of people were first using certain tools not just the obvious ones but like you know what you know pottery and and other things like that is that what you're saying yes first evidence we can just see people on the ground really out there they're because they're using stone lithic technology they're just leaving it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it patterns out, you know, we get to look at and examine. That's what I've done most of the last 20 years doing is looking at the distribution of those things and timing of those things. And it's been the last few years we found some newer wrinkles that give us a little more insight into their culture and society. Yeah. So what are those wrinkles? What have you found over this time? Well, we started to focus on an area a few years ago that was really intriguing, but we found Evidence of people using tobacco, which had not been demonstrated back to such a time, back over 12,000 years. 
And then last year we found footprints are just being exposed that look like we have, we're going to work on that this summer. We know that they are, they look like they're about 12,000 years. They could be a little bit later than that, but certainly in the Pleistocene, Holocene transition time, some nine to 13,000 years ago is what these footprints. And it looks like, but what I'm saying is I think they're based on all the data we have that we've been working on for two decades now about the stratigraphy and everything. We have a very strong set of data that suggests they kind of go along with that general area, those certain kinds of points, the tobacco seeds at this one hearth at a site nearby. And we think this is, we're seeing these people living their lives in this general area when it was available. And it's just now kind of eroding out of the ground. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, what uh, actually first um i love the way the footprints were discovered is it true you were really just driving along is that what happened can you tell us a little bit about that well yes but yeah yeah luck is the residue of design perhaps you know (laughs) i uh brought someone who'd seen him before out right that that's step one is um right no pun intended Uh, (laughs) the guy was with uh tommy urban he does ground penetrating radar and he is the guy who's, he was working at white sands where you may be familiar. It was in the news, white footprints were found at white sands and mm-hmm. that made a lot of news. They're purportedly over 22,000 years old. That's up for some debate according to some, but regardless, they are footprints and they're interlaced with footprints of megafauna like mammoths and camels. And so they're very interesting. And, um, they were found out white sands in New Mexico. Well, I just said that, you know, that context looks a lot like our context. And um, I have the kind of deposition. What's happening out in the Great Salt Lake Desert is, is the wind is just peeling grain by grain the surface of the desert away. Yeah. And what maybe used to be a thick amount of sediment has been just peeling away. And now it's gotten down to this 12,000 year layer. That's how... As un, it sounds so weird, it would even be out there. Right, That's right, how it's right. out there. What's yeah. interesting is it's kind of like mud out there. And so if you are below the surface, you have this like pristinely protected place. It, it's not, it's the opposite of looking like a peat bog, but chemically it's sort of operating like one where there's no oxygen. There's, it's kind of damp and everything is just really secure. But the minute it's at the surface, man, the wind is going to destroy, destroy, destroy. So, yeah. Um, that's a little backup on why you can even see this. But I thought, well, I'm going to call this guy up, you know, and um, okay. we conceived a little kind of pilot study, like I'll pay you to come out for a couple of days. And what we found wasn't what I had in mind. We had this other site we were working on. I thought maybe people walking around their own campfire would be a thing you'd see. But in fact, now I know that's not exactly the context you'd look for. What we found is what you should look for. But he came out and it's true, like day one, what I didn't know at the time is the people at White Sands are dying to have a second case so they don't look so lonely, you know, like uh, (laughs) nobody believes us. There's got to be, if we have them, someone's got to have them. And they had noticed the Great Salt Lake Desert is like a place to to wheel around on Google Earth and wonder. Right, Um, right. He got out there, we drove out in the middle of the basin where this is, and he started to get I could tell he was, he was looking around, you know, and he was like, man, this place just looks, there's got to be potential. And I said, well, what would they look like? You know, I mean, just somebody's 
footprint, I guess. I mean, and he really just like said, they look kind of like that. And <laughs> looked like he wanted to jump out of the car before I stopped it. And sure enough, <laughs> I mean, that's it. That is so funny. I mean, what, yeah, what, well, I guess the odds, yeah. That's, I mean, I thought for sure, like, well, he doesn't know. We've been surveying out here. We've done all kinds of things and even wet, co- damp conditions where boot prints or whatever might endure. Mm-hmm. But in the end, that's, you know, these are beer footprints and the, the real proof was in excavating a few of them and seeing how they were formed. Oh, wow. So how were they formed? How do you, what it goes into that when you excavate? Well, I excavated, it was the third one that I excavated that I knew I was, that I had. He only had a couple of days in the military, as they do sometimes is tell you, you can't go out one day just because right. they have lights or whatever. And so we, he only really had a day and we did his GPR over some of the, one of the trackways. We ultimately counted 88 footprints that we saw. Wow. Yeah. And he left and I had some other people out doing other projects, but I kind of went to my hotel room and read up uh, intensively like their articles that they had written on, on what this looks like, you know, subsurface and everything. And I kind of tried to follow the instructions. I went out there. I, I kind of tested like, well, I, I found some animal prints and I just swept, worked on those. Cause I didn't want to get into the other stuff yet. See if I knew what I was doing and, Mm-hmm. Finally, I decided I had to go try. I went to one footprint that was a little benign looking and I didn't see anything. And I thought, this is going to be hard. I don't know. Tried another one and I still couldn't, you know, it just wasn't making any sense. I was like, this is maybe not going to work out. I don't know what's going on here. I thought, well, I think I just need to peel back a little layer, about a centimeter. And so I went to a third one that I knew was a footprint. I mean, we had measured them out. We could see that they were walk. Someone was walking, whether they were doing it in the past or recently was the question. Right. I had noticed I I felt with the the trail sand in the middle of those other little boxes I put around those, but I couldn't see anything. So the third one, I I did it in a really nice way, very smooth and clean, like just little shoebox size thing around the what looked like the print. And I felt sand in the middle again, but I was like, man, this is just, this is a hokum. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to go. I went back to my vehicle and ate an apple and sat there and kind of mumbled about it and thought, yeah. And then I went back over to the print 15 minutes that developed like a Polaroid, I swear, because the huh. differential between the salt that's out there and, you know, mud versus sand. All of a sudden, this thing just looked like a foot. There was a bare footprint. And that's when I knew the whole thing was legitimate. So we worked for a few days digging some more to vet the whole thing. That's really cool. And maybe to answer your question a little more directly, what they were doing, what I know now from digging them, the prints were full of sand, like pure sand. Like you could buy at a Home Depot kind of place. (laughs) Right. Right. What it is is sand that was from a stream that was in this wetland that doesn't exist anymore. And mm-hmm. people were walking, it looks like about ankle deep in it, but the substrate was mud and there's sand flowing through here. And so the minute they pulled their foot out, all this sand rushed in behind them and left a perfect casting of their footprint, toes and everything. Yeah, yeah. And you can see there was another one I dug that had this kind of rivulet going into it like you would know if you walked on the beach or whatever sometimes the sand rushed 
water rushes in and kind of obscures your print immediately. That kind of thing was happening. So there hadn't even been that kind of sand there for at least about 10,000 years. Wow. So there's no way to duplicate that process that's later. Yeah. Wow. And so, okay, so you have the prints, you know their prints, and now you're kind of using what the prints are doing to inform about what the people at this time were doing. So what did you learn on that side of things too? So what do the prints tell us basically about what they were doing? Well, uh, this is something we want to learn more about this year when we do a little more work. But even with what minimal we did, we learned that we have more than just, we have a family. You know, I told you earlier, like, what do we learn from stone tools and their presence? You know, but it could have been of some guys hunting, you know, and some we don't know what, what do these sites mean? Well, we know that there were uh, adults and children. We had at least, and the size of footprints is pretty well understood within a range, you know, age yeah. level. And it looked like we had at least some kind of like five to seven year old, maybe some 10 to 13 year old and then adult. They're small, but the adult prints were small. Maybe that means they were female or maybe everyone just had smaller footprints. We don't know that stuff yet, but the mm. point is we had adults and children and that's something we don't learn about the past, you know, under normal circumstances. So right. it may seem benign and normal, but it's just cool. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And so the people that are there, adults and children do you have do we have a sense of what they were doing is it is it like a or is this a communal area where a lot of people were coming to or were they passing through well what we know about the stone tools there's something we do called obsidian sourcing like they used obsidian you know, volcanic glass and a related volcanic material that's a little more grainy we usually call it fine grain volcanic stone but it's like basalt or something and we can chemically source those. They have like a chemical fingerprint to the geologic source they come from. And we know at the time that these people early in these times in the Great Basin, they moved a lot and a long way. Those stone tools show us people moving hundreds of miles. So they were mobile. Usually they have small sites. They didn't stay at them that long. They moved on. And so that's why the question, you know, who exactly is doing this? The whole family move that much or maybe just some people of it. Right. But here we see what we think are people who would have been here for a short time before moving on up to Idaho, on down to southern Utah. That's the sweep of what we understand that folks at that time were doing. But what they were doing at the time was walking. Perhaps they were collecting food. Perhaps they were just enjoying themselves for all I know. Um, but they're walking in shallow water. If you're out in a wetland, I mean, the water sometimes is the best place to walk around, you know, depending on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we know they were, yeah, out in this marshland in the water. And based on the way the prints are formed, sometimes they're really deep. It looks like a little more muddy. Maybe somebody went a little farther out or, but where you have an actual track way, you know, you can't be sloshing around too much you're kind of in the shallows. Right. Yeah. So it's like I said, this is on military installation. So how has the military kind of helped with the whole process you've gone, you have going on here? Well, the military has been critical to it all along the way. Like I said that I've been working there for over 20 years and they are excellent stewards of the cultural resources. You know, they have a job to do, a mission to accomplish about testing and training weapons, but they do that in certain areas those areas get cleared by people like me and other environmental professionals. And they 
can do that work and they're very careful to not be destructive in this regard. And their stewardship of the archaeological record is excellent. And it's why the continued work to really work with the tribes and protect and preserve what's there have become highlighted. Yeah, and that's incredible. And it's incredible stuff. I'm really glad to hear it. It's funny, you know, one of the things I've talked about on the show before is the military does a great job on natural resources too, in lots of areas and lots of ways. And some bases care more about other than, than others, but you know, like, like the Magdill Air Force Base, right? It's, it's built in the absolute worst possible spot they could have picked. Right? They're just like, well, it's gross here. No one cares, right? We'll build this in the 40s. <laughs> and then they, you know, they're like, you know, it sure does flood here all the time. And now we know the whole thing is within the 100-year floodplain. 90% of it's wetland. There's 15 endangered species. And, you know, including like in the water and you know, birds on land. So there's, they get it from both ends. They can't go into the water. They can't go out of the water. But they really appreciate everything that's there and they're really they you know they care very much about manatees they can, they, they cancel projects that are going to affect them they have done a whole lot of work in that area to support and maintain the things that they have you know and very very neat they even work around it they're like yeah well if we need to build instead of building new we demolish and then rebuild so that we're not increasing our uh, our footprint in the floodplain because we know it's a bad it's bad for lots of reasons but it's been really cool to see i think a lot of people don't don't get that um, yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll pretend like you just asked me another question and say, you know, the military and our work with them and even in other environmental work is a great example of how environmental laws work at their best. Because, as you said, some of these bases are put in places that, you know, just because you couldn't mine them or farm them, that's kind of why they put them where they where they belong. But then you find out nature doesn't need to mine or farm anything. And Many of these places are basically nature preserved. Now they're protected. The military can accomplish their mission. And when we, the big pitfall of being an environmental professional is getting in the way, right? It's when you throw up hurdles instead of means by which people can get things done because you live in this world, you need power and, Mm -hmm. you know, you need things that come from the industrial world. How do you navigate? somebody who has a shared interest in protecting if it's reasonable you know you have to go in there and you work with them to work with the laws and and when they do it in a way they feel they're able to accomplish their mission and do it efficiently everybody up the chain looks good and it's good for everybody and it's good for the environment yeah absolutely and it's uh you know what is it things like eglin air force base being having the largest population of red cockaded woodpeckers in the country you know and it's a thousand acres that it's never going to be touched. That forest is there because they do forest training. And it's kind of an, a really incredible thing. So I love when that all comes together. Really, really great point. So you guys are going back out this year to do some more work again. And so I, it's whenever this stuff happens, whenever we have a, a site like this on the military, so you have basically the, a lot of different players coming together, right? It becomes a collaborative effort. So I know you're working with the, the military installation to determine more about the tracks themselves. Are you also working with any local tribes that are maybe interested in learning more about the tracks as well? Well, yeah, I mean, the tribes, there are several of them that the military consults with. And so it is totally a collaborative effort. And we want the few tribal representatives came out to visit the site last year. And we are looking for them to come out and participate even to what degree they want to this year. Yeah, That's really fulfilling because seeing somebody see what they consider their direct ancestors in a place they still call home is a pretty cool thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, that's very, very cool. I totally agree with you. Sorry, I'm, I'm like nerding out a little bit. So that's, that's pretty great. So when you're doing stuff like this, you know, not every project, of course, is, is as interesting and as unique as this one. But, you know, you mentioned your love for doing this work. And do you have advice for people who are maybe looking to come into this field, like maybe younger people who are considering it? Well, like, is there something that you wish you had known when you were younger that you could tell them now? Well, it's nothing you really want to do is ever easy, right? You know, there's the fun stuff is why what we're talking about now. I mean, you just have to really want it, mm-hmm. you know, being an archaeologist and perhaps being any other, many other environmental professional sorts isn't always, you know, it's not the direct route to the pay level that rivals Wall Street or anything, but um, right. so you got to like really want it. Yeah. And I mean, to make a whole career out of it, I think to have, why do, I mean, looking back on it, why am I, do I have a career as an archaeologist? Almost seems silly. Like, <laughs> like plan that up. But, but really, it's just because I wanted to do it. I was naive enough when I was young to just keep doing it. I didn't have anybody tell me I should be a lawyer or a banker or anything. And um, I'm dumb enough to just keep a job because I've got it. I, you know, like <laughs> I really don't have better advice than that. Yeah. No, that's that's perfect though. I think a lot of times we overthink it and sometimes it's great not to. No, I think that's fantastic advice, but uh, <laughs> so I appreciate it. Now, one thing we do love asking our guests is is stuff they do outside of the field as well and uh, kind of just fun facts about them. And, and, and one of the things you said was one of your interests is insects. So what does that mean? Do you, what do you like about insects? Let's see. <laughs> you asked me, so I said it. Yeah, you know, I, I was... Uh, like as a teenager, I was in 4-H and, you know, got into mm-hmm. bug collecting. I don't, like, maybe it sounds cooler now that I have a whole other job and, you know, I'm an adult, but it didn't <laughs> sound so cool when I was 15. Right. But it was something that I liked a lot. It got me outside. I still, you know, and I, I'm still fascinated by it. I started to look into getting into entomology. I grew up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is where Oklahoma State University is. So they have a substantial agricultural program that entomology fits into. But yeah. I kind of got into it. And, you know, whereas I, my naive youth was, you know, I don't know, pith helmet and butterfly net roaming right. around in South America or something. It's really like, can you make a pesticide? I, I know that I'm, <laughs> don't be mad at me, other people in the environmental field who I'm, I'm just, at the time I was young, I was like, this is what everything's kind of flowing me into. I don't really want to do that. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I was interested in archaeology, more interested. So it was a hobby. It was something that I'm still fascinated by. I follow like all these kind of into, into people on Twitter and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Cause I just like it. I, I'm kind of, I know all the, the backyard patterns of the bugs of my home. I, do a little kind of fiddling with kind of macro photography and stuff with insects. I just find them interesting. I mean, they're like aliens. Yeah, no, they really totally, they totally are. It's kind of like, uh, what if we're, what if our skeletons on the outside? You're like, what? No, that's (laughs) (laughs) never asked that question. That's pretty deep. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Or skin deep. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So do you have a favorite? Is it an unfair question to ask you if you have like a favorite genre, even of insects? Oh, yeah. I mean, monarch butterfly is my favorite insect yeah. across the board. But right yeah. second is the praying mantis. Oh, yeah. Both very interesting. 
Oh man, and praying mantis. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, alien, that is probably the most <laughs> you can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, like I say, I appreciate it. I know we're, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here and I, yeah, uh, I say it's been really fun talking with you and learning a lot more about what you do. And, but before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Let's see. We need more environmental professionals. So yeah. I hope that nothing I said didn't discourage anybody, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot. Business looks good for the next five years or something and take advantage, become an environmental professional. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And like I say, I really appreciate your time. But uh, before we let you go, where can people get in touch with you? On social media, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter account, but really I also, you know, I have a page on our company's website, Far Western Anthropological Research Group, farwestern.com. There's a page, has my email. I'm I'm easy to get hold of. Perfect. Well, thank you, Darren, so much for being here. We had a great, great time. All right. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you, Darren, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.